When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello and welcome back to another episode of Beyond the To-Do List. I'm your host, Eric Fisher, and this is the show where I talk to the people behind the productivity. This week, I'm excited to share with you a conversation I had with Kate Swoboda. She's the author of The Courage Habit, How to Accept Your Fears, Release the Past, and Live Your Courageous Life. And in this conversation, as you can guess, we're talking about fear, but more importantly, courage, and how to create courage as a brain-based habit that leads to more confidence and progress towards your goals, and especially right now, emotional resilience. So I'm just going to go ahead and get out of the way, and you can enjoy this conversation with Kate Swoboda. Well, this week, it is my privilege to welcome to the show Kate Swoboda. Kate, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me. So this is a, a, a timely topic, I think, uh, of talking about fear. And you've got a mm-hmm. book out called The Courage Habit, How to Accept Your Fears, Release the Past, and Live Your Courageous Life. And, you know, in all the times that I've talked with people about habits on the show before, uh, we've never talked to somebody who is framing habits as fear-based habits or courage-based habits before. And I found that really interesting and honestly uh, refreshing because of how motivating or as an underlying motivation, I should say, fear can be, but how much so or how much more so hopefully courage can be when it comes to habits. Absolutely. Yeah. It, it's a, been a really interesting field of study. And I, I'm one of those people where, you know, a Friday night, Google Scholar and I might have a little date and get hot and heavy as I nerd out on some abstracts and everything. But absolutely, the, the psychology of courage is, is an actual field of study. And of course, we all know that habits and habit formation are a field of study. And the two actually do pair together quite nicely. Fear is ever present. You just need mm-hmm. to go onto the internet right now to know that that is something that is true. But it doesn't have to be something that's so, at least I believe, and I think you believe, that it doesn't have to be something so pervasively freezing us in time. I mean, I think that's that's one of the things when it comes to productivity is that we often, out of fear, either don't act or make the wrong choice. How did you get interested in this? How did you get to the point where you, again, would nerd out and study it? I think my story is actually one that a lot of people have, which is that I got into it after realizing that a lifetime of trying to pretend I was above it or ignore it somehow, you know, that just wasn't working. And I actually open the courage habit with a story about how, you know, I was that overachieving kid through high school, through college, after college, got the job that I had intended to get, um, had quietly been pulled aside by people who, who had been there for a while, letting me know that I would be a shoe in on the hiring committee if I applied for an upcoming promotional position. I was 24 years old and being like told this, which in the, in the work that I was doing, this was like, whoa, this would, this would have been big for me to have made these kinds of jumps. And I, you know, I was, you know, very pragmatic. Let's be logical. And if my fear came up, it was like a weakness. And so I had to push it away right away. It was like, no, 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 no. We grit our teeth. We white knuckle our way through. That's what we do. And to-do lists were like, you know, I could knock out a to-do list. Behind the scenes, of course, as these stories always go, things were messy. I was prone to anxiety, depression, a lot of anger. And of course, those weren't safe emotions either. And basically, I'm sitting in a meeting and I, I wonder sometimes when I reflect on this, if it was timing, but it was like somebody had scheduled a meeting for like four o'clock on the last day 
before Christmas break. And I had been looking forward to Christmas break and having a couple weeks off like for so long. I was so burnt out, such a perfectionist, overworker. And then at this meeting, you know, the typical politics, people were arguing with one another. And then somebody basically got everybody onto a consensus that we were going to spend our Christmas break with each of us working on a little piece of a project, which we'd then bring back to like show to everybody when we got back from break. And the voiceless voice <laughs> came up. I don't hear voices in my head, but this one was very clear. It was like my own voice. And it was it. It shocked me. And the voice said, I don't want to do this anymore. And it was like once it's like that thing that once you see it, you can't unsee it. Once you've heard it, you can't unhear it. Once you know it, you can't unknow it. And I remember sitting in that chair and very viscerally feeling dizzy and almost like worried that everybody else was going to see that I was sitting there. Like, And I was just it was so clear. I don't want to do this anymore. So I go home to Christmas break and then I'm kind of thrown into this personal crisis because my own best thinking had gotten me to exactly that place. Like I didn't want to do this since when, you know, like this is what I'd worked for. This is everything I'd wanted. And, you know, I went through over the coming weeks and months, um, some periods of maybe that voice is wrong. I started doing what I think of as desperate journaling, where you're like desperately trying to journal your way through and maybe logic your way through. And eventually where I landed was just realizing that I didn't have my next answers, that that voice was telling the truth. I didn't have my next answers. And that actually the hardest part of it all was that I was afraid and I was trying to not be afraid. And that if I could just accept the fact that, okay, I don't know what I'm doing and I'm totally afraid. I'm not necessarily walking into work on Monday and, and, and quitting my job, but I'm, I'm totally afraid. If I can be with this feeling, what, what might happen? And that's what I started to do. And then that's when I started to realize, like, oh, this whole cultural concept we have around fearless, no one's fearless unless they are, you know, a sociopath and they've totally disconnected from their emotion. Everybody's afraid of something somewhere, especially when you stretch outside your comfort zone. So instead of trying to run from my fear, what happens if I feel afraid and dive in anyway? What I found was that we transform. And years later, you know, Dr. Brene Brown is coming on the scene and going, you know, basically like with shame, you know, there's nobody who doesn't feel shame. And the more you try to say you don't feel shame, the more it probably runs your life. And the only people who don't feel shame are people who are actually psychologically incapable, like sociopaths, of not feeling emotion. Well, I think the same thing is true of fear. I think the more somebody is out there saying, be fearless, you don't, you know, fear is nothing. You're more powerful than fear without dealing with the fear, the more it's probably running their life. We can't bypass it. You know, I've heard it from a number of different places that are that are the smart voices to listen to instead of the silence, the fear, or be fearless kind of, you know, voices that you hear. It's and when I hear those those good voices, they're saying things that ring true to me in terms of the story of people that are getting healthy or overcoming things. And what they're saying has something along the lines to do with what you're saying, which is fear is not something to be gotten rid of. Fear is not something that uh, you need to hide from or run from. It's, it's one of those things where much like uh, or, or similar to pain in your body, if you're listening to, and having self-awareness of your emotions, your thoughts, your, you know, your physical body, etc., that knowing what it's telling you allows you to then do something with it instead of numbing it, right? Like if we if we just ignored the pain in our body or a specific emotion, which I guess what I mean, what's your thought on this? I know that it's not cut and dry, easy, simple pat answers, but <laughs> do you think that fear is a thought or a, an emotion or a mixture of all of that? I think it's a mixture of all of that. Okay. I think that the things we fe- the things we think about influence how we feel and then how we feel influences thoughts. And so what we need to do, and this is part of habit formation, habit formation is about these cue routine reward loops. And when we can provide what's called a neural interruption, 
for any habit that we've got, whether it's a habit of interrupting people or a habit of forgetting things or, you know, a habit of not making it to the gym because you, you don't set up your day to make it to the gym. I mean, whatever the habit is, there's a neural interruption that needs to happen. And, you know, you talked a moment ago about avoiding the fear. And what I've found is that there are actually three common ways that people try to deal with fear. They aren't effective, but the culture really conditions us into them. So everything I'm saying, I really hope listeners are like, okay, this is not um, anybody saying do it better. It's more like, hey, we've all been conditioned into this. This is a soup we are all swimming in. But most of us, you know, we, we get this and it's, it's, we learn to either try to avoid or ignore the fear. Or we attack it and tell it to shut up and go away. Or we try to placate it. And that's like perfectionism where you try to just, and that's very much what I was doing. I would either placate it by trying to do life right so that fear wouldn't come up, Mm. you know, do all the, tick all the boxes. Or if that didn't work, that's when I would attack it and tell it to shut up and go away. Or I'd I'd try to numb out and ignore it and, and things like that. Now, in the short term, does that work? Yeah, of course it does in the short term. The problem is that that doesn't work in the long term. And the example I like to give people to really illustrate that is that children who are raised from any of those three places don't turn out too well. So imagine your 10-year-old self, if you don't have kids, how you would have wanted to be treated at like, you know, 8, 9, 10. Or if you have kids, think about them. If they are throwing a temper tantrum, Should you lock them in a closet to ignore them? No, that's called child abuse. Should you attack them and tell them that they're stupid and to shut up and call them names? No, also called child abuse. Should you placate that child throwing a temper tantrum to try to keep them from having the tantrum? A lot of parents do this, actually. And here's the problem. And I say this gently because I'm a parent, too, and parents are doing the best they can. That doesn't teach emotional resilience You are never going to bubble wrap that kid to go through life where people are endlessly placating that kid so that it won't be upset, so that it won't have a tantrum. So placating our fear, trying to do life right or trying to remove any possible obstacle, not in a healthy way, but in a way where we just bypass going through the process of meeting a challenge and overcoming it, it doesn't teach us what we need to know. So the research that I started to do was was about, okay, well, what are the healthy responses to fear, stress, anxiety, whatever word you want to put on it? Because some people don't like fear. They're like, oh, I get stressed. I don't get afraid. I just get stressed. Yeah. Like, okay. Semantics, but <laughs> stress, fear, same thing. Um, and the, the things that emerged were basically what I ended up putting into the courage habit. So I don't claim any of this as like my own brilliant invention. What I'm saying is, okay, instead of going into the old fear habits, the the per- process of perfectionism, people-pleasing, pessimism, self-sabotage, all these forms of avoiding, pleasing, or attacking fear. Instead, when you notice that you are feeling that cue of fear, that trigger of fear, actually provide that neural interruption. Hold on a second. I don't want to spin out. I need to either, one, access the body, or listen without attachment to what my fear is saying. Listen, don't don't say it's true, but just listen. Or I need to reframe some limiting stories. Fear is telling a limiting story, and I need to reframe it. Or I need to reach out and create community. And that's what actually builds the resilience. And that's really what we're talking about with courage, right? We're not talking about this sanitized life where you're never afraid. We're talking about you're afraid, but something within you goes, I have the capacity to meet this challenge, even if I'm afraid, and emerge courageous and emerge more resilient. I want to use an example here. I assume that you've had moments where you've gotten you know, on a stage, larger, smaller scale, doesn't really matter, but enough times where you've done it. Have have you ever had a fear of doing that? Absolutely. Yeah. I've so, had fear while up on stage. Right. Same here. And so I, I wanted to point out that it happens every single time. Mm-hmm. E- every mm-hmm. single time. I mean, you would think, I mean, in, in traditional, you know, pop psychology or logic or whatever you want to call it, like that the popular culture would say, oh, if you do a thing enough times, then eventually you won't be afraid anymore. No, like the feeling is there 
every single time. The thoughts are there every single time. I just had it happen where a friend of mine and I were co-speaking together at a small conference and it was, you know, I don't know. The, the the room fit about 90 to 100 people and it was it was full and we felt really proud of that. And even in that proud moment and feeling, okay, good, there's a lot of people in here and we knew what we were going to talk about and we were polished and you know, we felt good, we had a great rapport. I still had the fear the entire time. Yep. And I don't know if there's some sort of way to describe that I felt healthy while yet fearful. I don't know. Does that make sense? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So because so it's like um, it's the cult of I would say it's it's that at the same time that you felt fear, a part of you has cultivated trust. Because, you know, think about people you interact with, with this avoid, please attack. Do you trust people who avoid, you watch them as they avoid dealing with problems? No, we trust them less. Do you trust people who just placate? No, we trust them less. Do you trust people who attack? Of course not. No, we trust them less. But when we see that people, hey, okay, I made a mistake, but I get back up and I try again. Those are the people we trust. And we don't trust them because we're like, ah, yes, we have found a flawless person who will never make mistakes, never disagree with me, never hurt me in any way. No, we've found a person who they might do those things, but they are willing to get back in the game and say, okay, I have an awareness of my own fallibility and I'm in this with you, co-creating this with you. So it's like this, this self-trust that, you know, people say, I want to trust myself. I want to be my authentic self. Well, to me, the ultimate expression of courage is that who you truly are on the inside is how you actually live on the outside. And nobody gets there without some hard knocks. And if our response in life habitually is that when we feel afraid, when life delivers us a poop sandwich, whenever we are are failing, making mistakes, etc., that we avoid or placate or attack, we trust ourselves less. And I think on some level, too, when we recycle the same old patterns that we know don't work, we also trust ourselves less, that the trust emerges when something within us goes, I am going to do what it takes to look myself in the mirror and feel proud exactly as I'm showing up here. So I've got this fear and it's air quotes imperfect. I'm not stoic all the time. I'm not a Stepford wife, but I show up and I try. And that is something that I found is is really, really resilience boosting for me. I, I, I think about that even on stage where it's like, okay, I'm like, I've never delivered a talk or facilitated an event 100% perfectly ever. I can say that now and I've facilitated many events. But what I do know is that I look for the opportunities to get back up again to, you know, if I throw a question out to the audience and there are lack of raised hands instead of my fear running the show like you suck and all these things it's like okay that that didn't land for the audience let me try something different and that's how you learn to trust yourself i wonder if uh oh gosh train of thought just kind of derailed hold on a sec <laughs> Being up on stage. It happens to me. It happens to me. And that's why I love it's why I love doing this, to be honest, is because it's (laughs) kind of like having a public speaking gig every week, but it's also like talking to a friend at the same time and I can mess up and no one knows. So well also I, I think you keep this in so that all yeah. your listeners are like, oh yeah, and Eric is still going to like show up at the you know podcast mic for yet another day and it's totally fine. You know what? You're <laughs> right. And so uh I will leave this in. I will leave this in, just so you know. Still searching for a great candidate for your company? Don't search, just match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch that busy work. Instead, use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. I wish I had Indeed when I was in the hiring process in roles in the past because it is a slow, arduous headache of a process to find the right people or at least it used to be, join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to find and hire great talent 
fast. In fact, in the minute I've been talking to you, 23 hires were made on Indeed, according to Indeed data worldwide. And listeners of the show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash to-do list. Just go to Indeed.com slash to-do list right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash to-do list. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. If you enjoy Beyond the To-Do List, I invite you to check out Best Laid Plans. I'm Sarah Hart Unger, the host of Best Laid Plans, a podcast devoted to all things planning and planning adjacent. I talk about everything from paper planner reviews to deep dives into all things productivity, from keeping track of goals and tasks to fitting in your true priorities and reducing the stress around planning and organizing across different areas of life. I am a practicing physician and mother of three, so I have a lot going on in my own life and I'm intimately familiar with the time constraints that impact us all. And I love sharing my own productivity strategies and learning from others who have their own ideas to share. I invite you to check out Best Laid Plans, available on all podcast platforms, or visit my website, theshoebox.com, T-H-E-S-H-U-B-O-X.com, to learn more. I want to talk about the fear-based habits and the courage-based habits, and I want to kind of pivot it into, with that example I was just giving, in that instance of every single time getting up on a stage, getting in front of people and talking, and I'm never not afraid to do it, but I don't I don't become debilitated by the fear. And I mm-hmm. the, the courage, I have the courage, partially based on growing that muscle, I guess, but also having a courage-based habit around that instance. The thing I'll throw in there too is that part of what's happening when you're up there on stage and you're you're like how how are you keeping it together is probably the question people would have listening to this like how how okay, yeah, you're saying you're afraid, I'm afraid too. Well, so what's the difference between me and Eric? And my guess would be that it's a combination of things you tell yourself and behaviors that you perhaps um turn to to stay the course like there's probably some kind of facilitation trick or a joke that you commonly rely on that puts not just the audience at ease but you at ease um and then the other thing too is that you um are monitoring on some level your biological responses so you're breathing mm. your your biological response of breathing the breath is everything you know, you're right. I think there's, I, I definitely know that there's definitely points in time where I'll throw a joke in, uh, that I wasn't planning on. It'll just be, you know, that kind of, uh, what, what's the word? Uh, improv, uh, improvisation and definitely, definitely breathing. Although I don't know that I've been aware of it before or thought about it consciously. It's been maybe an unconscious kind of toolkit, but now that you've said it, I'm definitely going to be more aware of it for next time. Yeah, it's an interesting thing. Yeah. So, well, let's dive in here and and talk a little bit about the the Q routine re- reward process. We've talked about that before specifically with just the word habit, but again, we've never talked about habits in the framing of fear-based or courage-based. So, let's kind of set some context and then dig in a bit. Okay. So, habits run on this, as you mentioned, cue routine reward loop. There's a cue, which is like a trigger. That's the feeling of fear. There's a routine and that's a response to the trigger. So there are four distinct fear patterns that I see people go into in response to their cues of fear. And then there's a reward. And the reward is to the brain, whatever reduces stress. And that's very important because people might be like, Well, what do you mean? Like, I'm arguing with my spouse. And so, okay, the cue of like fear and upset and anger. And then I go into a routine maybe of like getting a pot shot in. What's the reward there? And um, in case in case anyone's wondering, speaking of public speaking, I was aggressively asked this question while up on a stage. (laughs) (laughs) And luckily, I had an answer, which is that in that moment, the reward, I can't know for that person um, in every relationship, but my guess would be that the reward is either the familiarity of having executed that routine multiple times, so it's a comfort zone, even though it's not functional for an argument to get a pot shot in in the long run, or it's a reward of feeling a little bit more in control, which I think most people, if they think about 
what they do and say in an argument, that's really what they're doing. It's like when, when I'm in a disagreement with my husband, what I'm really wanting is control of the narrative. And the narrative needs to be that I was right, he was wrong, and he needs to do it differently. And of course, his narrative is that he's right and I'm wrong and I need to do it differently. And we need to get out of that. Um, so we've got this cue, routine, reward loop. The four fear patterns or routines are perfectionism, pretty self-explanatory, people-pleasing, also pretty self-explanatory, uh, pe- pessimism, which is a kind of going to like, what's the point? Oh, got to be realistic. I'm just not the person who can. Somebody else has done it uh, before me and they did it better. So why bother? And self-sabotage. And while all of these patterns are forms of self-sabotage, um, I highlighted self-sabotage as its own category because that's where we get into spending because you saved, not exercising for a month because you put in two good weeks, uh, talking to your your most wet blanket pessimistic friend about this big new idea. You know, those are clear forms of self-sabotage. So my hypothesis is that when it comes to psychological courage, we feel afraid, like maybe you want to get up on stage, but then your boss at work piles you with a lot of stuff going on and your partner kind of says something about, oh, well, you're going to have to travel an extra day to like go do that speaking engagement. And so then you go into your people pleasing routine, like, oh, I'm going to let people down. I don't want to be selfish. I don't know. Or maybe getting up on stage, your people pleasing routine is I got to do what the audience wants me to do. Uh, what What is it they want? Am I good enough for them? Am I pleasing them? Instead of making it a mix of wanting to deliver for the audience and also bringing your unique gift that you're up on that stage to give. So we go into those routines. Why? Because we want the reward. It's comfortable. It's safe. Maybe if you go into your people-pleasing routine, you'll talk yourself out of even doing this very intimidating talk that you need to do on stage. And at least temporarily, that's going to decrease your stress. In the long run, though, that habit of going to people-pleasing is, of course, not in your best interest. So what do we need to do instead? And, and you know, with perfectionism, people-pleasing, pessimism, self-sabotage, we all do all of them. Usually one is more of a hook than others. Like I, you know, raise my hand for the perfectionism one. But it's not about, again, trying to be fearless or perfect or not do these patterns anymore. What happens in my own life all the time is that I feel afraid about something, go into my perfectionism routine, but I'm clearer about noticing it now. It doesn't control me in the same way it does. And as soon as I notice, oh, that's a perfectionism behavior. That's something I say, do, think, or believe when I'm caught in perfectionism. Having that awareness means that I can go, okay, hold on a second. Let me pull in a courage habit behavior. One, access the body Two, listen without attachment. Three, reframe limiting stories. Or four, reach out and create community. And you can do just one of them if you want, and that will definitely help. But all of them, of course, are more powerful. So it's going from a place of I feel afraid, I go into people pleasing, maybe I back down from doing this thing I wanted to do or going after that dream. And instead, I feel afraid. I start to go into the routine, but I have a neural interruption. I go, hold on a second. Let me access the body or hold on a second. Let me reach out and text my friend. Hold on a second. What is my fear actually telling me? How can I listen but not lend it authority? Hold on a second. Let me reframe that limiting story. And the reward you get when you go into a courage-based habit instead is that greater trust and resilience. Uh, one of the things that I hear from a lot of people as they're talking to me, uh, either on the show or outside of the show or they write in is one of the things that, uh, it, and this relates directly to fear is they get something which my friend Jeff calls, uh, vapor lock. They, they hmm. overthink things and then they pause and they do nothing. They either don't know what the thing is they should be working on right now, or they don't know what the next step is that they should be working on. So they either do nothing 
or procrastinate and choose to do something else entirely and just kind of flail around. And, 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 and it's ultimately kind of born out of this fear of missing out that if I, that if I don't take the opportunity that's right in front of me and work on this awesome course or book or podcast or whatever it is project and get it done now, somebody else is going to beat me to it. And then, you know, it, then I'm sunk and I'm worthless. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What I hear in those examples is somebody who's actually trying to bypass the fear. Yeah. They're, they're trying to do the work to get the outcome instead of actually go, wait a second. I'm really afraid. I'm afraid of missing out. I'm afraid of failure. I'm afraid of somebody else beating me to this opportunity. And then there's a whole identity thing that's in there. I'm afraid of who I am if I like, like, and how I'll be defined by others, either in the business sector or how I'll think of myself if I don't do this thing. And the paradox, of course, is that you just described that (laughs) people end up feeling like crap anyway. So it's counterproductive, which to me is like something to highlight for listeners. Like, let's not do the things that are actually counterproductive. So for me, you know, if, if I was coaching that person, for instance, the first thing conversation I'd introduce is the one around accessing the body. Fear isn't logical. If it was, nobody would feel afraid because we'd all go, oh, what's so scary about sitting down and typing that proposal? It's just keys tapping on a keyboard. Like we'd objectively look at what it is or we'd go. And if they reject the proposal, if there's no blood. Nobody's dead. It's fine. You know, like if fear were logical, nobody would be afraid. Fear isn't logical. It's primal. It's something that we tie to our identities. It's something that we tie to our place in the world. It's something that we tie to our social relationships. And it's scary. So accessing the body looks like um, it can be standard meditation if somebody has that practice. Um, I actually did some accessing the body earlier this morning. I'm in the process of moving to a different state and it's arousing plenty of fear for me, even though logically I know we're good. Logically, I know that financially it's a better move for my family, that um, in terms of community and my husband and my daughter having like more people that we can connect with, it's a better move. There are all these logical reasons why I shouldn't be afraid at all to live on one patch of soil over there instead of this one that I'm living on right now, objectively speaking, but I've been afraid. So this morning I actually sat down and I know this will sound crazy to some people, but I sat down and I have a playlist that I listen to of sad slash intense music. And I just like you would for a meditation practice, set a timer, cried. Like I just sat down and like, said the statement over and over. I'm really afraid. I'm so scared. What if it's wrong? You know, I'm scared about the news headlines. I tried to think of anything that I I might possibly have that I was afraid over and just like let some tears come out about that. And then I get up 20, 25 minutes later and I'm like, I'm good. I'm solid. Let me hop on the phone with Eric today. (laughs) You know, so accessing the body can also be, um, running, but the point being not just running and you tune your brain out, but like if you're really angry at someone and frustrated and resentful, like running and you imagine that your steps are like smashing their face, not a a good thing to do (laughs) to actually smash someone's face. Right. But like you're processing out the feelings. I feel like the day that I discovered CrossFit, I was like, where have you been all my life? I found the one. I'm happily married. And then now CrossFit is my other partner. (laughs) I love CrossFit. If anybody listening to this has never like done an overhead press or overhead squat and then stood up and slammed that barbell onto the ground. Oh, you got to go do that today. Because it's so good for getting stuff. It just catharts it out. So you can do like mindfulness-based practices. You can do stuff that's more intense. But attend to the feelings because you are not a robot. You are a human being and you feel things. Whether you want to admit that to other people or not, you do feel things. Uh, One of the movies that I was looking forward to seeing and was finally able to get a chance to see was the uh, a Beautiful Day in the Neighborhood, where Tom Hanks plays Mr. Rogers. Have you seen this yet? 
I haven't. I saw the documentary about Mr. Rogers, but I haven't seen the Tom Hanks and I it's on the list. Okay, good. Well, here's the thing. Uh, he as Mr. Rogers is talking to a reporter that's talk that's interviewing him. And one of the things that he was talking about was how to deal with your feelings. And, you know, he's talking about you can get go to a piano and you can put your hands down on all the deep keys and make a really big sound like boom or you can get a pillow and you can go and you can cover your face with it and just scream as loud as you can and and have that moment mm-hmm. and you know let it out in a safe and a, in a in a good way and it, it I couldn't help but be reminded of that when you were talking just now 100% I was doing that this morning alongside the crying and with my daughter who is five and a half. Um, it's a regular conversation. She'll, she'll say, she'll actually say, I'm really angry when she doesn't, you know, and she'll, she'll say, I don't like being told no. You know, if we tell her no, she'll, she, you know, sometimes she'll cry. And my question is often, what do you need? You know, do, and, and the training, the conditioning I'm trying to give her is what is it you need? And sometimes she'll say, I don't know. These days she knows more, but it's like, you're feeling angry. Do you want to stomp on the ground? Would you like to hit a pillow? Do you need a hug? Do you, you know, and sometimes, I mean, she's gotten pretty good at it. You know, I she was upset about, you know, because kids, they have a lot of feelings. I actually think kids are very wise. Just because we're adults, we have this idea that being an adult means you suck it up and you don't have feelings. And it's ridiculous. And it's making us sick. It's making us miserable. And I'm not here for that. <laughs> I'm not going to train my daughter into that either. So, like, you know, the other day she was upset about something. And, you know, just like the things kids get upset about uh, being, you know, no, we're not going to, you know, stay up later or something like that. And she was upset. I said, would you like a hug? And she's like, no. And and then she goes, but will you sit next to me? And I said, okay. And I just sat next to her and she cried for a minute she, over it in 30 seconds. You know, I really believe that, uh, we, we, we need to embrace more of our humanity. And I know that there are, Many people who who listen to um, podcasts and they're going to go, what this touchy feeling? I just have to say to those people, I was you, I promise. (laughs) Okay, and if I had found research, there is research all over the place about the necessity of owning emotion and, and authentically creating safety around feeling what we feel. If I had found research that said, um, rigid, by the way, stoicism, I've read some stoicism and, um, like it's okay to go ahead and feel what you feel. Stoicism is about don't let it affect the rest of your day. So this idea that this, you know, stoicism is just like a stiff upper lip and you never have emotion is actually incorrect if you go read some of the stoics. But that having been said, if I had found research that said, just tell your fear to shut up and move along. Um, and that's effective. I would be off writing books about that and doing it in my own life. But the clinical research has not borne that out. It just has not. People say stoic. And, you know, I think of the, the Greek philosophers, but I also go to Mr. Spock, you know, and who approaches everything with logic and nothing, you know, emotion, emotion is flawed. It's, it's not to be had any time spent on it. And yet if there's anything, I'm, I'm a huge Trek person. Um, and, you know, if there's any time to be spent on it, it's that, uh, it's, it's a useless endeavor. However, one of the major things that you always keep continuing back to is that it's never necessarily a weakness. In fact, in, in, and even, oh gosh, I am really going to nerd out here for a second. I can tell. I'm just going to go ahead and do it. It's my show. Um, yeah. <laughs> one of the other things, cause I've been watching a lot of Picard, which is just a new Star Trek show that's revisiting things and it has a lot to do with, gosh, even Captain Picard. Okay. I am going to nerd out here for a second. I wasn't sure I was going to go too far, but I am. So Captain Picard was a very stoic person. And over the course of the next the next generation television series of Star Trek, he forms a family with his shipmates that all look up to him. He's their captain. Not only that, but then there's also an actual artificial life an Android data on the ship who's trying to figure out what it's like or what it means to be human and to become more human. And in fact, one of the things, you know, spoiler alert for people who haven't watched Picard yet, but one of the things that Picard realizes is that later in life that they were so similar because they both were struggling to figure out how to deal with their, their emotions and their thoughts and their feelings. They weren't good people, people, 
but they figured that but he figured out that they loved each other and were family because of that very fact that that drew them together so mm-hmm. anyway there you go nerding out <laughs> i love it no i i, I think i love people who are passionate about things and i i feel like people who are passionate about things are the most interesting people in the world so i i love it yeah so and, and i think the the big takeaway is that wallowing in emotion or getting stuck in an emotion mm-hmm. it's what is what's problematic you know it's like uh, nobody's going to say that you're wrong for feeling grief where we get when somebody dies where we get concerned is when it's years later and it's like the the needle on the grief has not even moved that's concerning it doesn't mean that the person is wrong for feeling what they feel it's just like i think if we look at emotions in terms of what's effective it is far more effective for me as a parent to create some space for my daughter to have about a minute of emotion than it is to deal with, you know, um, a, a massive meltdown later in the day that she's been bottling up or to deal with like little bits of emotion throughout the day. It is far more effective for me to sit down for 20 minutes once a week and just go, okay, what is it that I'm afraid of today? What's the stress that I'm carrying and just cry it out and then move along with my life than it would be to have the little pricks is how kind of how I think of it. Mm. I almost think that when we don't deal with emotion, it's akin to wearing like a wool sweater that's itchy. And it's like technically like you can do it. It's just not very comfortable. And you start to notice it more and it's kind of, and it, it, it's like, it's not hijacking your life, but it affects your life. And when we don't deal with our emotions, it, it absolutely will affect your life. I think this is a great conversation that we're having right now that really dovetails or, you know, kind of fits the, I don't know, the center of the Venn diagram of other episodes that I've had, whether it's been the topic of self-awareness or specifically the topic of habits. And I think, you know, people who may have not gone in on or bought in or, you know, cared about those topics specifically might find a different or more accessible entry point to assessing not only their self-awareness, but also their habits by what we've been talking about here. Yes, you'll be wildly more productive. I mean, like I know you've interviewed Dave Allen, right? Yes. And when I've I've heard multiple interviews with Dave Allen. I've, I have his book. He's talking about taking all the stress that you feel. That's like, you know, and instead of just like sitting down at your computer and getting stuff done, he's talking about get it onto paper capture it. You know, this is in, in, in a sense, a way of processing those things so that it's like there's, um, you know, the Challenge Day organization, which is an anti-bullying organization, has this metaphor for how we habitually tend or, or commonly tend to deal with emotion, which is the emotional balloon. With a real balloon, if that balloon gets too full of air, what's it going to do? It's either going to leak the air somehow or it's going to explode. And that's what happens with our emotions as well. We bottle them up. We're trying to carry our families and our lives and the news headlines and the fears and bills and laundry and success and building something. And it all gets bottled up. And if we don't deal with it and release some of the air intentionally, it will leak. And that's usually numbing out sarcasm pessimism, resentment, like that low-grade meh, or it will explode. And that's where we either retreat to the bedroom and just sleep and watch Netflix for a week, or we are absolutely tyrannical with everyone around us, or we can't get anything done. And to me, when I hear Dave Allen talk about the capturing process, I go, ah, that's the release valve for the emotional balloon. He's saying, I deserve a better life than having all the stress swirling around inside me. I'm going to get it out of me and I'm going to get it onto paper. So there are lots of ways to, you know, access the body, process emotion, all these terms we're throwing around. But the important thing is find your way instead of pretending that you aren't stressed, pretending that you don't have the feelings of overwhelm or fear or what have you. It's so much more productive. Well, and one of the things that I find when I'm doing, say, a weekly review or a mind sweep uh, that David Allen does suggest doing as part of the next step after capturing. I find the fear shows up there when I'm, when I go to a coffee shop, this is often what I'll do is I'll go to a coffee shop and I'll sit down, I'll get a cup of coffee and I will with analog, I will pad and paper or, you know, and pen sit down and just try to get 
everything that is on my mind out of my mind and onto paper so I can see it, move it around, move it into a list, something. I can manage it, in other words. But the one thing I didn't, I don't typically count on, but has always happened when I'm doing that is the fear shows back up. When I write certain <laughs> things down, fear, the fear shows back up. And even in those moments when I'm feeling better, uh, about things by getting it off my mind and out of my, you know, mental ram, the fear will show back up. And even in those moments, I have little pockets of time where I'll sit with it. I'll, mm-hmm. you know, as I, especially for some people who, who are easily overwhelmed or even if you're not, but it, it, overwhelm comes to everybody. When I sit there and I'm looking at this paper and, and all the things that I've written out and I'm trying to, to kind of maybe, maybe semi struggle, admittedly, uh, manage it and put it into neat little compartments and things like that. The fear will show up and it will say things and it will hinder me. And, and, and I still, you know, I was, but, but here's the thing. I will sit there and I will, mm-hmm. I, and again, I will embrace it and acknowledge it. And say, as, and, and that, and again, this is, I think, part of, although I don't, I know that David Allen doesn't necessarily say this. Uh, maybe he, he probably would agree with it though, that that's part of the thinking and the work of deciding what those things, what about those things? What's the next step? What about it needs to be done? He's very much, uh, a non-logical person. He's very much a free thinker when it comes to all that and all about this, I think. Well, what I hear in there is the courage habit uh, step of listening without attachment, Mm -hmm. which is, you know, so listening without attachment, um, you know, I think of our fear as being like a wound. It's got a limited skill set. That's why it tells you that you're a piece of crap if you fail, because if that's what it has to do to get you to not take that risk where you might be wounded yet again then that's what it's going to do. Or sometimes our fear is very saboteur, very like, oh, just take a load off. If that's what it needs to do to get you to not go after that thing you're afraid of, because at the heart of like this, you know, the capture process or these lists, when the fear comes up is what if I can't do it or I can't do it well? So if we listen without attachment and we listen to our fear, not as an enemy, but as, okay, this is a wound or a part of me that lacks a skill set then I can just hear the words, I'm afraid that I can't do it. And then I can move into something like reframing limiting stories, like, uh, I don't know if I can do this yet, but I'm willing to try. Or I, I, I hear that fear. I get it. You don't feel like you can do it. We're still going to go ahead and move, move forward anyway. And, and I'm here and I'm listening. We can have some time to access the body. It's like it's a real dialoguing with the, the different parts kind of a process. And unfortunately, what I hear so many people have been conditioned to do with their fear is to abuse it. And I would just like to remind everybody that if the way you talk to yourself, to your fear, and your fear is part of you. Mm-hmm. It's just a part, you know, if you say you want to you wanna love yourself unconditionally or at least have high positive self-regard, and then you're, you're saying, you can't do that and then go, well, I'll have high positive self-regard, except for that fear. That part I, I divorce myself from. No, it doesn't work that way. It's there. And so if the fear is a wound that has a limited skill set, if trust in yourself slash your fear is an issue, what do you want to do? You know, you want to avoid it, ignore it, placate it, attack it. That diminishes trust. So what's going to help with that wounded aspect of the self? What's going to help it heal? Give it more of a skill set. Give it more trust. I hear you. Um, you don't get to be in the driver's seat. Uh, we're going to try this anyway. But I just want to let you know, like, I hear you. Do you have anything you want to let me know? Sometimes fear has some very helpful information to offer us. And again, I keep going back to these examples of how you would deal with children. If a child is throwing a temper tantrum, you you don't want to beat it because it threw a temper tantrum. But at the same time, you're not going, oh, it's all good, glitter, you know, like it's cool. Just go ahead and tan. It's like, no, there are boundaries. If my daughter is yelling at another kid, 
I'm not going to be like, oh, it's cool. I just need to let you be your authentic self. Like, no, there's actually a social norm here, (laughs) a boundary. You don't get to yell at me or other kids, you know, because you're having feelings. So it's about, you know, there's a wound, but also, or a lack of lacking skill set, but also there are boundaries that we can implement with these parts of ourselves. And I actually think children respond very well to structure. I think when we're wounded, our wounds, like if you break your leg, it responds well to structure being in a cast. And I think with our fear, it responds well to structure. The the scariest thing to me is when nobody's kind of taking control and saying, here's the boundary, here's the container, here's the structure we're going to step into. We could probably go on talking about this for, <laughs> I don't know how much longer, but a lot longer. And I definitely know that this is one of those places where uh, not only do I have a lot more work to do here and have come very far, and that's really important to acknowledge, uh, you know, through some of the examples, uh, that were given here and even the, the things where I geeked out on that you can tell, like, I'm thinking about this and this is, this is really important. It's, a, it's an important component to making wise decisions and, and living a full life, which I mean, that's what productivity is really all about when it comes down to it. So. Uh, I would love to direct people to where they can learn more about what you're doing in this space, not just the book, but let's start there. Yeah, I, I do a couple different things. I, um, speaking of accessing the body, I recently became a meditation teacher for Simple Habit. Though I got to tell everybody, my meditations are not like OM. They're more like meditations for days when you feel like you're not enough. <laughs> <laughs> um, I am the director of a woman-centric life coach training program called the Courageous Living Coach Certification. Of course, author of The Courage Habit, which you can find at bookstores everywhere, Amazon, all that good stuff. And then I'm over at Your Courageous Life. I, you know, speak, facilitate corporate wise um, events, and then also uh, do one-on-one coaching. So lots of different stuff. Awesome. So for everybody that's uh, on the move, whether that's a treadmill or in the gym or as they're driving uh, and want to check out those links, I'll have those in the show notes for everybody. And Kate, this has been an awesome conversation. And I think we're going to have to continue it and do like part two and part three at some point. So thank you so much for being here. Yeah, I'll come back anytime. Thank you for having me. Well, that's another podcast crossed off your podcast listening to-do list. I hope you enjoyed this conversation with Kate Swoboda. If you did and you could think of somebody else who needs to listen to this episode, please hit that share button in your podcast player app of choice. And if you're enjoying listening to this show like I'm enjoying making it for you, please consider helping share the show with someone else or by rating it and reviewing it wherever you're listening to it. Thanks again for sharing. Thanks for listening. And I'll see you next episode.